Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords. My name is John Keeley. This is the podcast segment of our show that is not broadcast on Station KLA. Our guest for the 373rd show is Dr. Kristen Cove-Dumay professor of history at Calvin University, who has taken time to talk to us about her book, Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation. Our history brought today's show is Brett Menard and Terry Toppler. Terry, since you were always above and wanted nothing to do with pool boys, you get to start off this time. <laughs> Thank you. Well, Dr. Dumay, I want to talk to you a little bit about the title, Jesus and John Wayne. I read uh, somewhere that it's actually from a Christian song. Can you talk yeah. a little bit about that? Yeah, so when I was looking at evangelical books on Christian manhood, uh, what struck me uh, very quickly was how little they actually looked to the Bible for a guide to masculinity, and instead they were looking to Hollywood, to Hollywood heroes. Uh, one of their favorites was uh, Mel Gibson's William Wallace from the movie Braveheart. They looked just to soldiers, to mythical warriors, and then John Wayne just kept popping up again and again. And um, what I came to see was that, um, as we had talked about earlier uh, in, in, um, in our conversation, that the kind of biblical teachings... Uh, the, the model that Christ uh, gives in the New Testament, the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, right? These things, these things don't make for a real militant masculinity. And so they needed to go kind of outside of Christian tradition to find these really militant models of, of manhood. And um, that's where they went. And so their writing is filled with these ideas of these secular heroes are really the models of Christian masculinity that we need to look to. And, um, and John Wayne is right up there as, as uh, you know, kind of this inspiration for what Christian men should aspire to be. Okay, Brett. So with this Christian masculine ideal, how do they um, – negotiate their current ideal with the ideal of someone like, say, Francis of Assisi? Do they just never talk about him in the first place or explain him as a creature of his own culture? How does that work? I don't think he ever, they ever read about him. <laughs> no, no, no. He, he had, Francis of Assisi did not appear in any of the dozens, <laughs> if not hundreds, of books on Christian manhood that, that I surveyed. Right. I can say that with some confidence, yes. Uh, so, so, you know, it, it's funny because when you're inside these cultural circles and, and, and you, you, um, you, know, you talk about a Christian hero or, you know, heroic masculinity, uh, it's it's the John Wayne models, the the you know William Wallace that come to mind, and yet when you think about it, you know there are a lot of other heroes that they might look to. You know, um, um, non-white men, for example, don't really register often in, in terms of you know this this heroic Christian masculinity, or you know Gandhi, or you know Francis of Assisi, or you know there are other models of courage and of heroism. But that's not what they're talking about when they're talking about um, that heroic masculinity. It's a very militant and often very white militant model of, of manhood. 
Well, can I ask the question that because when you're talking about Billy, Billy Graham and I, uh, when I was a kid, as Jay said as well, he's a little older than I am, that he was still out there. But when I kind of studied this stuff in the '80s, uh, I read that the turning point was when Jimmy Carter got elected. Many of the evangelicals turned to him because he was a devout Baptist who was mm-hmm. a Southerner, and when they started talking what they wanted to do. And he pretty much says, that's not like anything I've read. Um, and he wanted nothing to do with them. They then pivoted to Ronald Reagan, who, like Donald Trump, his religious background was not something that was really etched out. And the guy who was driving this was kind of Jerry Falwell. Am I correct with that or not? Yeah, you know, that's, Jerry Falwell is right in there. And, and yes, that's a really, it's an important turning point, uh, turning point kind of coalescing point, because... Uh, you know, what we think of today as white evangelicals being, you know, uh, devoutly Republican, that was still up for grabs in the 60s and 70s, in part because the parties themselves were kind of, you know, we, we were seeing this, this shift between the parties, and the parties were coalescing around uh, different agenda, different different values at that time. And so Jimmy Carter's presidency is, is really uh, illuminating. At that point, you know, they weren't die-hard Republicans necessarily, especially Southern evangelicals, had a long tradition of voting Democratic. So, mm-hmm. so, so, you know, the party identity was still up for grabs. And you're right. Jimmy Carter, he was a Southern Baptist, a Sunday school teacher, former military. He seemed to check all of these boxes. But when he's in the, um, in the Oval Office, we start to see he's pro-ERA, right, pro-feminism. His, his idea of family values are not conservative white evangelical ideas of family values. And then his foreign policy, he comes across as this as as you know weakness and you see the decline of american greatness under his watch and he has everything that was wrong and so yes you see this huge um kind of enthusiastic shift to ronald reagan as the cowboy president the republican who is you know going to make america great again right so Kristen, i'm kind of curious at this point um the country seems to be pushing back on a lot of these kinds of issues within the Christian movement or even within white evangelicalism. Is there a pushback? Is is anyone effectively getting traction on challenging some of these core beliefs? Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I've, this book has been out for a couple of months now and I've been a Astounded by how many letters I've received. I think we're over 150 now from evangelicals themselves or former evangelicals, people close to these circles saying, you know, one, this is the story of my life. And two, thank you so much. And so I, I sense that there are a lot of members of these communities who are uncomfortable with where things are at, who are, um, uh, who do not think that you know, this administration and these values are, in fact, compatible with their understanding of their Christian faith. At the same time, it has been very hard for these people to have the courage to speak up in their communities. They know that they're a minority voice. And so right now, there are some individuals who are pushing back very vocally. Many of these are the same people who were against Trump in 2016. Otherwise, there are, there are some who are, who are starting to speak out more, but there still is very much this pressure to stay quiet, 
to not cause disruption. And the power dynamic is still very much, I think, pro-Trump in these white evangelical communities. And I would be, I would be very surprised if we saw a significant drop in, in the number of white evangelicals who are voting for Trump this November. So, Kristen, let me follow up with that then. Is, is white evangelicalism at this point, is it impossible to separate political aspirations and ideology from, theolo- from theological ideas? For many, it is. And you will find outliers. You'll, you know, we had at least 20% of white evangelicals who did not vote for Trump. And so there's, there's always this kind of minority voice, minority position. But even if you talk with them, like they are constantly bumping up against this dominant culture and these dominant values. So yes, on an individual level, people can say, I'm an evangelical, but I do not ascribe to this political and cultural set of values. But writ large, you know, this is the kind of dominant um, form that white evangelicalism has taken. And, um, and it's, 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 it's very powerful. And it's, it's hard to see that, um, to see how that's going to be quickly dismantled. Okay. Well, one quick question before, because this is kind of relevant today. Jerry Falwell was noted in the 60s, for being totally anti-civil rights. Matter of fact, he coined the term, it was the civil wrongs. Now that once again, we're having minority issues brought to the forefront. Do you see the white evangelicals taking the same path that they did in the 60s, where they were denouncing it? Or is this, are, are the, is there any movement of change? Uh, you see, you see a variety of approaches within white evangelicalism, as as you did in the 1960s. Um, you know, to be clear, there's an evangelical left that emerged in the in the 1960s that was very pro civil rights. You know, okay. people um, like Jim Wallace that be, you know in, evolved into the Sojourners movement and and others as well, um, including um, Black Protestants who identified as evangelicals at the time. So you did have this again minority position, um, and you had a lot of other evangelicals who were cautiously supportive of a very limited approach to civil rights, and Billy Graham would be in in that group as well. But once kind of civil rights legislation passed, there was this idea that, okay, enough is enough. The riots were, you know, too much, too far, and, um, you know, you got your rights, and now we're good. And I think we see similar kind of patterns today, where you have some white evangelicals who are very much kind of against civil rights, but but those would be a, a minority. You have many, many more who would deny that, say, you know, police brutality is a problem, um, that that there are, you know, that they would deny systemic racism. They would really push back against that narrative, even as they would say, but we are not racist, right? And so, yeah. um, so I think you see similar kinds of patterns where there's strong pushback within white evangelical communities, not against civil rights in a kind of innocuous, you know, we achieved that in the past kind of way, but very much in terms of what needs to be done now and in the future to bring greater equality. And that's where you'll see a lot of, a lot of opposition, opposition, you know, equating um, kind of the Black Lives Matter movement with Marxism um, and with, with heresy. Okay, Brett, one last question for you. Okay, since you brought up the topic of heresy, which <laughs> historical heresies are most popular in modern evangelical masculinities, do you think? Oh, which historical heresies? Oh, so 
So many. I, I mean, one of one of the things that this is really the whole ideology is kind of linked up with Christian nationalism, with the idea that America was once this great Christian nation, and then you know we have to things fell apart, especially in the 1960s, and we need to achieve American greatness again. You know, and obviously this resonates with with you know Donald Donald Trump's campaign um, motto, um, and and so I think that that just it's, I don't know if it counts as heresy. Um, I think theologically, you should you could suggest that any Christian nationalism would count as heresy. That you know, universalism is really at the heart of Christianity, and it, it goes against nation and against division, and it's unifying. Um, but also historically, it's just a bad understanding of America's past um, to define it in simplistic way as as a Christian nation at its origins. Um, that's just historically inaccurate. Okay, and Terry, you get the last question for the segment. All right. Well, I'll just end with, um, I'm still thinking about when you talked about the idea that evangelists have, some evangelists have the idea that Jesus was a militant, and they refer to uh, cite the turning of the tables and revelations. And yet the turning of the tables had to do, of course, with the, with kicking the money lenders out of the temple. Exactly, well, yes. Now I'm questioning, you know, when we get into these mega churches and these, this consumer culture, how yeah. do they put those two together? Yeah, so they don't go there with that story. They kind of stop with the, see, he had a temper and he got really angry. They don't read the Bible. Okay. <laughs> well, you know, you know, there's a lot in the Bible. If you ever sit down and try to read it cover to cover. So I think everybody who reads the Bible is, you know, and, and, and says that they apply it to their lives is going to have to do so in a selective way. So, you know, it's not just evangelicals who, who can be accused of that. Um, but but yes, this um, kind of critique of wealth and power uh, is, is not really a part of this. Power is seen as something that Christians need to grasp and to hold on to in order to do good, right? So you need, and, and it, that includes physical power, like you need to resort to violence to achieve order and to, to pursue righteousness, you know, military, individually, gun culture, all of that. Um, and then also it is linked with the idea of, of um, kind of economic power, of wealth. That's another kind of power. And, you know, the Christian businessman is, is kind of a, a warrior in the economic sphere, and he should be admired. And this idea that with power you can do great things. Now, for God, of course, is the idea there, but do great yeah. things. And that's, that's really, you know— um, to me, again, to get back to the subtitle, the, how they corrupted a faith. So I'm, I'm a Christian. I'm a practicing Christian. And the way I understand Christianity is that at the heart of the gospel story is Jesus giving up power and it's sacrifice and it's loving others. And, and it's really a, a kind of countercultural message. And I think that that um, kind of divestment of power, giving up power, is, is, is at the heart of the faith. And that's really rejected in this model of militancy, where, where you want power, you deserve power, and you have to maintain power in order to, you know, do what you think is, is right and good. Yeah, right. he ruined it for all of us. Yeah. <laughs> well, on, on that encouraging note, we would like to thank our guests for this 373rd show, Dr. Kristen DeMay. Professor of History at Calvin University. We've been talking about her book, Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation.
Our history buffs for today were Brett Menard and Terry Toppler. You can listen to ROI as it's being broadcast on Friday nights on KALA HD2 88.5 FM and 106.1 FM in the Quad City region at 6.30 p.m. You can also listen to the show as it's being broadcast on TuneIn.com. Put KALA HD2 in the search box and look for ROI. Previously recorded shows can be heard at SoundCloud.com. Just put KALA Radio, all one word, in the search box. Click on the first icon and scroll down to find ROI shows. You can also find ROI on all of your favorite streaming platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. ROI is recorded at station KALA, St. Ambrose University.